Welcome back once again to the Richard Roper Show. I am Richard Roper. Thanks as always to everybody who's been downloading and sharing and giving us some great feedback. I got some really good feedback last week. I appreciate it. Some of it was loving and some of it was tough love and that's okay. I want to hear what you like and what you don't like about the podcast. We appreciate everybody who's been listening and of course, telling their friends about it and downloading and subscribing to the podcast. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit different today. Not that any of these podcasts are scripted. You could probably tell if you listen for more than about a minute and a half. Um, but I don't even have notes on this one. I'm just going to go with it. I'll explain everything in just a second. But uh, this is going to be a podcast featuring some stories about uh, everybody from Al Pacino to Channing Tatum. We may even get to a Donald Trump story. We shall see. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Thanks, as always, to the great folks at AmericanEagle.com, the amazing studios they have here, and of course, the production team, my producer, Brian Winger who takes these words and then shapes them into something listenable and drops in all those great clips. And hopefully um, when I fuck up, gets rid of the fuck ups. I think so. Pretty sure. Pretty sure that's what he does, among other things. And of course, Tim Melanius and Renee Nelson and everybody at the AmericanEagle.com empire. We appreciate all your support. So I got the idea for this podcast when I got an email last week from someone asking me if I was going to be at the Sundance Film Festival, which is a uh, takes place every January. You probably know that if you're listening to this podcast. And um, they wanted to set me up with some screenings and some events and some parties and stuff. And I I told this this very nice publicist that I really appreciate them thinking about me, but no, I won't be attending Sundance. And uh, I actually haven't been to Sundance in many years. And I'll explain why. It's nothing against the Sundance Film Festival, which is awesome, which is iconic, legendary. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the history of the Sundance Film Festival in a second. But as you know, it, it has become this huge thing. Here's my experience with Sundance. I did go uh, for several years, uh, many times with my uh, late great partner, Roger Ebert. We would sometimes do some television bits from there, and both of us were writing about it. But what I found over the years, as I've done more and more reviews and continued to work in other mediums, uh, including, of course, radio and now podcasting and TV, is that it almost took me away from the purpose of my work. And I know that sounds crazy, but my primary job as a reviewer has always been very mainstream, and I'm fine with that. Uh, you know, there's there are tons of specialty publications and online sites and and places where you can get really deep into the business of filmmaking, the behind-the-scenes stuff you know, what's coming out. And we talk a little bit about that, but we're all about the reviews. And my reviews, I I look at, you know, I I write for the Chicago Sun-Times. Those printed uh, reviews are syndicated to publications around North America. Uh, Obviously online, you can see them everywhere. This podcast goes out everywhere. My television audience uh, for the ABC affiliate in Chicago is a mainstream audience. So I'm not writing for or broadcasting to or podcasting to necessarily the industry or insiders. So I found that when I would go to Sundance, I'd be writing about films that weren't coming out for maybe a year. And my editors at the Sun-Times and, and my audience let me know, you know, we want to know about what's coming out this Friday. We want to know about the the newest movies. They don't have to be the huge blockbusters, but, but we want to know about 
you know, stuff that we can see. So they almost got frustrated. And, and you know, the truth is you can get great reporting about the Sundance Film Festival from great reporters, terrific reporters uh, from all walks of life who really specialize in this stuff. And I'd rather read their reports, honestly, than go there. And I also found, to be honest with you, even though Sundance can be really glamorous and exciting, I don't know that as a reviewer, it's the best place for me to see a movie. And I'll tell you why. Many times when you're at Sundance, and you'll see people writing about this, you'll see four or five movies in a row in a single day. And you go from venue to venue. There's the famous iconic Egyptian theater, the Prospector Square Theater, the Yackles. There's even, you know, library centers. There's smaller rooms where you can see movies. So you're often taking shuttle buses from place to place. And it's equal parts exhausting and exhilarating. But I found that sometimes seeing a movie, you know, the fifth movie of the day after running around for 12 or 14 hours at 10 o'clock at night was maybe not the most, the, the fairest thing to do to that particular movie. Because you're not in a certain frame of mind as you might be when you're normally seeing films. And listen, I sometimes see three or four things in a single day in Chicago. Most often it's one or two per day. I like to spread them out so I can really soak in the film or the streaming series, whatever the case may be, and then, uh, you know, review it accordingly. And and, and with Sundance, I, I know a lot of a lot of film writers will tell you this. They see the movie there, they report about it, and you know, a lot of big deals are being made, stars are born, uh, but then they got to see it again when it comes out eight months later. And for me, that just didn't seem to be an economic and judicial judicial. See, there's an example where, Brian, don't, you don't have to fix that part in the edit because this is how we talk. But it didn't seem like the best use of my time. And certainly I didn't think it was right for my audience. So anyway, that's that's the background on Sundance. The Sundance Film Festival, there are different iterations of it. It, it actually started in the late 1970s as a way to champion filmmaking in Utah. Eventually, uh, Robert Redford's Sundance Institute, that's where the name comes from, Sundance. You know, that was his character in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Spoiler alert. Uh, Paul Newman was Butch Cassidy and Robert Redford was the Sundance kid. So Sundance became this big thing and it really took off in the nineties. And that's when, you know, filmmakers like, you know, Quentin Tarantino workshopped Reservoir Dogs at the Sundance Institute with some of the cast that eventually were in the movie. And then some other folks that for various reasons weren't in the film and Kevin Smith became a star and, 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 you know, <laughs> setting aside the horrific, crimes committed by the monstrous Harvey Weinstein Miramax became this huge presence at Sundance and it became the you know just a, a great place for up and coming films and to turn directors into stars turn uh, young actors into stars and there'd be all this great buzz I started going in the late 1990s and it was right around that time actually that Sundance kind of started undergoing some changes that they'll tell you some of the long-term you know folks who have been associated with Sundance for a long time will tell you not necessarily the greatest thing, because then all of a sudden it became about Entertainment Tonight and all the other, you know, Access Hollywood and all those other, and nothing against those shows. They were out, they came there because the stars were coming out there. But then all of a sudden you were getting to this point where the Britney Spears of the world were coming to Sundance. People that didn't even have movies in competition because the parties were getting outrageous and the, you know, the celebrity sightings were getting crazy. I remember I was there, God, this is going to be, I'll have to look this up later, guys, but this would have been more than 20 years ago. And I'm out there and listen, the truth is because I was on the television show with Roger Ebert, I was given, you know, the golden ticket and, and invites to everything. And Roger didn't have a ton of interest. He wanted to go to the dinners and talk to the directors and stuff. And so did I, but he would be like, you go to the late night parties. I don't want to do that. I was invited to a party 
at the Hugo Boss House. And I thought, well, that sounds really cool. The Hugo Boss House, it must be associated with, you know, Hugo Boss, the lining, the line of clothing and, and fashion. It was actually Hugo Boss's house in the mountains in Utah. And there was this insane party. There must have been 500 people there and goodie bags and, you know, the drinks are flowing and famous DJs and everything. And I remember writing this uh, for the Sun-Times because I'd write these kind of dispatches that everybody there was talking about these two teenage girls that had sort of taken over Sundance with their crazy bad behavior. And those teenage girls were Paris and Nikki Hilton. I think they were 19 and 17 at the time, as I recall. And that was sort of when Sundance really got into this place where it was, you know, almost too much about the parties and not the movies. And then there were even like campaigns, like it's all about the movies and people wearing buttons and things like that. And I think it's gotten back to celebrating the movies. That was quite a long time ago. It's gone through different different iterations, but it's as, as popular as ever. Uh, and I, I, I kind of love the locals' attitude because, you know, you know, Park City, Utah is a, a ski town. You know, it's got a lot of locals and some of them get the hell out and some of them make a lot of money renting out their places uh, during Sundance. But I remember there was this one restaurant where all the waiters and, and servers and bus people, everybody who was working at the restaurant wore T-shirts one year. And the front of the T-shirt said, no, I don't know who you are. And the back said, and I don't care. The wait is 20 minutes. <laughs> that was great because that's the other thing about Sundance. You know, you're going to get a lot of people who come from Hollywood who are big, 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 big deals all in a small town, tightly uh, enclosed atmosphere. And you got a lot of people saying, don't you know who I am? I need a table right now. Now, to that end, I will tell you, I'm going behind the scenes a little bit here, pulling the curtain back. There's also, uh, you'll read about certain parties and events, but there's also quite a few private events. A lot of the you know, beautiful restaurants in Park City, uh, one studio or another or one production company or somebody like that, you know, they'll rent out either a back room or the basement or even the entire restaurant to have, you know, these private dinners. And I, again, was super lucky to get invited to some of these. So I was at Sundance one year, and this is early 2000s, and um, somebody reached out to me and said, uh, would you like to have a dinner with Al Pacino? Al Pacino's uh, promoting some films. Uh, he's in town. He'd love to get together. And I'm like, yes, I think I can clear my schedule for that. And there was about, I think, eight of us total. So I go into this restaurant and go to, we actually went into this downstairs room and there's Al Pacino. And you guys, you know, I don't know if some of you, I think, know my background story. You know, I'm recording this here in Chicago. I didn't grow up in any kind of a show business family. I can get, uh, you know, sometimes I'm amazed at the things I've been able to do in my life, but I'm kind of past being starstruck, except for when I meet stars who were stars when I was growing up. You know, if I meet a 30 year old actor or athlete now, it's really cool and I respect their work and it's awesome. But I'm not the kind of guy that wears, a, you know, a jersey of some 22-year-old when I go to a Bears game. I'm just not that guy. But when I've met, you know, Al Pacino, uh, when I had a chance to meet Paul Newman, uh, Sean Connery, Audrey Hepburn, this is early in my career, there were so many times when I wanted to kick myself because I was just thinking of the 14-year-old me who loved movies uh, and would watch like the Channel 9 late movie in Chicago all the time. And if someone had told me, you're going to get the chance to interview Jack Lemmon someday, I'd be like, what do you mean? That's insane. So Al Pacino, one of my all-time favorites, of course, and there he was, clad all in black at this little restaurant, said hello to me, and I said, I'm going to, waiter came up or server came up and said, would you like something? I said, you know, I think I'll get a beer. And he's like, I, I'm Richard's going to get a beer. I'll get a beer too. That'd be my Al Pacino for you guys. Uh, this was before dinner. So here I am. And of course, you know, you're, you got to play it cool there. I'm not there to interview him. I'm just there to have dinner and, you know, kind of enjoy each other's company. And a couple other people were there. 
uh, and just talk movies and talk the business and everything. Uh, and at the time, Al Pacino had these twins who were maybe, I want to say, five years old, somewhere around there. So we're talking about different movies at Sundance. And then he says to me, Richard, he goes, uh, what about that uh, movie that's coming out, the cartoon with the talking cars, the talking cars? And I'm like, do you mean cars? Yeah, that's it. Is that any good? Like here, I got Al Pacino. You know, I want to talk Panic and Needle Park, and I want to talk Dog Day Afternoon and The Godfather and all these other movies with him. And he wants to know about cars because he's got kids. And I'm like, yeah. <sighs> okay, here we go. Focus, speed. I am speed. It's it's really you know the animation is 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 different and unique and Pixar. You know, they do great work, and and I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, okay, talking cars. That's 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 my that's my takeaway from from the El Pacino story. I also had dinner with Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams. He was doing a movie called uh, promoting a movie called One Hour Photo. If you ever have a chance, if you haven't seen this film called One Hour Photo, uh, it's a brilliant psychological thriller. Remember, this was you know this is already. Almost ten years after Goodwill Hunting, so we knew Robin Williams could do great dramatic work. He had done a lot of stuff by then, but then he was doing things like Insomnia with with Al Pacino. And in One Hour Photo, he <laughs> here's the thing about this film: even though it holds up very well, uh, the whole premise is something that wouldn't make much sense now because he plays Cy the photo guy, and he's the guy that develops your film in the One Hour Photo. One Hour Photo was a, a kiosk that was in big box stores or standalone. You'd bring your photos in. It was an amazing thing because instead of having to wait a week for them to get sent to some lab, they would develop them on the spot, the pictures. And Robin Williams plays this strange loner who becomes obsessed with this family and thinks he knows them and is part of the family because of all the pictures they bring. It's a wife, Connie Nielsen plays the wife. It's a, you know, it's a wife and husband, a little boy. And and you think this movie's going to go in one direction and it goes in several different directions. Anyway, uh, Robin Williams was at Sundance promoting uh, one hour photo and we had a chance to have dinner and it was really interesting too because and i had done a couple of events with him charity things and everything and and he was you know robin williams was one of those comics who was always on as you probably know jim carrey there's some comics that can kind of put it in a box and not have to worry about performing unless they're actually in front of an audience and there are others that almost always have it on so even though it was a small group for the first 20 minutes or so, Robin Williams was giving his amazing routines about, you know, President George W. Bush at the time and whatever was happening in the world of politics and things like that. But once we settled into dinner, like a long three-hour dinner, everything just sort of, you know, became, I guess you want to say normal. We had beautiful dinner, beautiful wine, talked about things Robin was not drinking at the time. Um, and we talked about his upbringing and growing up and you know, films, and he was so kind and so thoughtful and so real. That was my takeaway. I remember calling friends afterward, a couple of friends, and they're like, oh, my God, was he the funniest guy ever? And I go, he was for 15 minutes, and then he was just the loveliest guy ever. And that's just such, such a treasured memory for me. Tell you what, why don't we take a break? Uh, Rokan will tell you about uh, Portillo's, and we'll come back, and I'll share a few more stories with you guys. I think it is time to tell you about Portillo's. Okay. The greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're going to have anywhere on the planet Earth. Right down to the poppy seed bun. You're going to enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses, whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm -hmm. The fries, the salads, 
the chicken. I'm telling you, if you have Portillo's, the burger, it, the burger's great. Yes, and and you can get beer at the Portillo's too if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just gonna tell you right now. If you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. Take the Roe and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're going to have ever in that kind of a food environment, like fast casual. You know, it's not exactly fast food. You can sit down. It's nicer, but it's super great. Portillos.com, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Ask your friends in Chicago about it, Portillos.com. Okay, welcome back to the Richard Roper Show. I'm Richard Roper. Just sharing some fun stories today. Uh, you were expecting scandal. Listen, there's about 20 stories I'm never going to tell anybody, not even in a memoir someday. For various reasons, but these are more kind of just fun encounters I've had. Whenever I tweet about, uh, you know, these types of uh, intersections I have for a few hours with 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 famed actors or directors, people seem to get a kick out of it. I'm, I'm not the biggest name dropper in the world, but I also, you know, these stories are, are, are kind of fun. And uh, as I said, the, the whole Sundance thing got me thinking about some of the amazing encounters I've had over the years. Now, some of them have been by just happenstance and chance. They weren't because of work I was doing. It wasn't because I was on a red carpet or because I was at the Academy Awards. Oh, I'll tell you the Academy Awards. One quick Oscar story. You know, the Vanity Fair parties, the, the famous Oscars party. There's a bunch of post-Oscars parties and I, they still do them now, but they, I don't know if they do them as crazy as they did back in the day. And I was at some of these parties where it looked like, you know, everywhere you turned around in the room, it was just one Oscar winner after another. These parties were not open to the press. Again, I got invited because I was on a show with Roger Ebert, and we were sort of in between land. We had a television show. We certainly weren't, I didn't consider us to be, you know, anywhere near the fame of any movie stars, but but the show was respected because of what Roger and Gene had done, and Roger and Gene were legitimate, you know, nationwide celebrities, so they'd get invited to things, and then after I joined the show, I would get invited to these things, and I'm like, of course I'm going to go. And I do remember, and this cracks me up now, and I'm not going to get political, but it just cracks me up now because, of course, Donald Trump has become so anti-Hollywood and all of that in recent years, and it's, he's played that to perfection. But, of course, he he wanted nothing more than to be accepted by Hollywood. That's why he loved doing Celebrity Apprentice. And to his credit, you know, that's that, that show was very entertaining, and it played off of the more cartoonish aspects of his uh, personality which would have played better, I think, in a fake boardroom than they ended up playing in real life. But I do remember how much he used to suck up to celebrities. I remember him waiting in line to greet Nicole Kidman the night she won the Academy Award. And I, I remember that because I was hanging out with Nicole Kidman's parents. We had had quite a few drinks. So I'm like watching these this line of people, and there was Donald swaying back and forth, coming to kiss the ring. So he always talks about how everybody in Hollywood lined up to kiss his ring. I, I saw evidence uh, of the exact opposite of that one night at the Vanity Fair party. Okay, here's one for you. This was, uh, I was on a flight, taking a flight back from doing a bunch of publicity, um, I think around the Oscars actually. So flying back from Los Angeles to Chicago, that's about a four hour flight. It can be four and a half hours sometimes. Good long flight. I had my girlfriend at the time with me. We had gotten tickets, you know, on, for the flight back. And um, it was one of those deals where, and again, this is stuff that, you know, 
I was lucky enough that, you know, Disney, which owned our show, would, would set us up with stuff, you know, and always be gracious enough to say if I wanted to bring someone out with me, I could. So they bought tickets. You know, we had tickets back and forth from Chicago to L.A. And then a week later from L.A. to Chicago, our tickets on the way back were not together. I was in 3A. She was in 4A, I think, as it was, you know, like one behind the other. So we thought, oh, you know, when we get on the plane, people are always really good about this. Uh, we'll just ask somebody if they would kindly move, let the flight attendants know because they want to have the names of the people who are in the seats. And then we'll be able to sit together for this very long flight. Sounds simple enough, right? So we get on the plane and there's a woman sitting in 3B, which would have been ne next to my seat in 3A. And very kindly ask her if she would be so gracious as to just uh, switch with my girlfriend at the time and just move back one row. And this woman, younger woman too, um, I think her name is Karen. I don't know that. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> this woman says, I don't ever do that. I don't switch seats. I'm in my seat. I'm not switching. It's a rule I have. Well, I'm like, well, this is going to be fun for me on the four and a half hour flight from LA to Chicago. So she won't move. So I said to my girlfriend, all right, well, have a nice flight. I'll lean over the seat and say hello to you at some point. Right. So she's in her seat in 4A or whatever the hell it is. I'm in 3A next to uh, Miss Congeniality, who's next to me. And just before the uh, the gates are going to close and the flight is going to take off, uh, they're holding the, not holding the flight, but the, la the last person to get on, on the plane is a big hulking guy. And he's got one of those old timey newsman caps. You know, those caps, sometimes like cabbies wear in the old movies or the newsboy, like those kind of Babe Ruth caps. He's got one of those on kind of over his nose a little bit. And he comes in apologizing. Hey, everybody, sorry, you know, he puts his bag up and he he sits down, says hello, you know, very polite to my girlfriend. You know, how are you doing? She says hi. And I'm listening and I go, I know this guy. And I'm like, I know this guy that's sitting next to her. So I turn around and I'm like, it was, it was. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm hearing just this very brief, you know, perfunctory exchange between this the, the passenger and my girlfriend i'm like I, I know this i know this guy i know that voice for sure and i turn around and sure enough it's channing tatum and i'm like hey channing it's richard roper how you doing and he's like he had to look like oh great the movie reviewer but he's very super nice he goes hey richard how you doing say hello and i said oh this is my girlfriend i introduced her and she's not this my girlfriend at the time we're still friends she's not somebody who's particularly starstruck at all not a, actually not even a huge movie fan one of the reasons we got along so great you know she i mean she loves movies and likes to watch movies as a fan but a casual fan you know so oh, hi how are you doing and by that point of course the flight attendants already knew that it was him at that point the other passengers nearby knew it was channing tatum and they were all excited and saying hello and of course uh the woman next to me the look on her face because all she had to do was be nice and she could have been on a flight with Channing Tatum for four hours. Not, you know, listen, he slept most of the flight, spoiler alert. Uh, but still, she would have had a much better story because I don't know how she tells that story. I think she probably doesn't. Or she just says, oh, Channing Tatum was sitting uh, one row behind me on this flight. But all she had to do is move and she would have had a much better story. Um, so <laughs> sort of like instant karma. Uh, and the uh, the reason why Channing Tatum was flying from uh, L.A. to Chicago was he was filming a movie with Rachel McAdams called The Vow, which came out. Let's see. It would be 11 years ago uh, this month, actually. I think it came out right early in 2012. I'm almost sure about that. Life's all about moments of impact and how they change our lives forever. What if one day you could no longer remember any of them? 
Kate, you're in the hospital. You were in a car accident. Hey, you, you know who I am, right? Yeah, you're my doctor. She doesn't remember me. Her memory is going to improve with time. I need to make my wife fall in love with me again. We will always find a way back to each other. It's not a good movie. It's kind of entertaining just because it's it's kind of batshit crazy. The vow. Uh, it's based on a true story, believe it or not. So the, the, in real life, this couple had known each other for many years. This was, I think, in the 90s. Uh, they were married for only 10 weeks when they were in a horrific accident. And when the wife woke up, she did not remember anything about her husband. She remembered things from her past, but she did not remember like the previous several years uh, but they were very religious and spiritual. So she said she'll honor her vows and stayed married to the guy. And eventually they renewed their vows. Um, and this became a nationwide or national story. I don't know if it was in the United States or Canada, but it became a huge story. And they, I don't know if they stay, I don't think they stayed together, you know, but, but the story was still kind of beautiful and amazing because they essentially, she fell in love all over again uh, and took the, you know, had this vow. So they do a very fictionalized version of this, uh, with Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum, who are both very good in this, but it's, it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's supposed to be, it's serious, but it's also just ridiculous. Uh, they're in Chicago, they're in love. Uh, they're in the car she leans over to kiss him and they smash into, I think a snowplow and Rachel McAdams goes flying through the windshield of the car. Not the real Rachel McAdams, the character she's playing, you know, and when she wakes up, she can't remember she can't remember anything about, not even, even though it's Channing Tatum, she can't remember anything about him at all. She's completely, so, so her character of Paige doesn't know this guy named Leo. She remembers her ex-boyfriend played by Scott Speedman, I believe, but uh, Channing Tatum's uh, loyal Leo decides he's going to try to win her back. And even though she never does remember him, spoiler alert, it's a romantic story with Channing Tatum and Rachel McAdams. Uh, you know, there's hope for romance. So that's what uh, Channing Tatum was doing when he was uh, flying from L.A. to Chicago and the rude woman wouldn't change seats and didn't get to sit next to him. And that brings us to the vow. And if you're looking for something to kind of, I, I don't want to say you laugh at it, but it's pretty ridiculous, but it's pretty entertaining. And as a Chicago, and I appreciate that they filmed at least some of it in Chicago and, and not just all in Toronto. Boy, I got, uh, I'm just getting warmed up. But you know, I think we're going to leave it at that. Uh, we'll do this again sometime in the very near future. Just tell some fun stories from my adventures out there. My name is Richard Roper. This is The Richard Roper Show. Thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs>